Hello, and welcome to Investigative Postcast, a new podcast from Investigative Post. I'm Dan Telvach, environmental reporter for Investigative Post, a nonprofit investigative reporting center dedicated exclusively to watchdog journalism in Buffalo and Western New York. In this week's episode, I interviewed Virginia Tech's civil engineering professor Mark Edwards over the phone. Mark helped uncover the lead in drinking water crisis in Flint, Michigan, and was called the heroic professor by the Washington Post. Today, we talk about the dangers of lead in drinking water. Mark, you you recently visited Buffalo. You were here a couple weeks ago, and you spoke at uh, University of Buffalo, where I believe you got your, your undergrad degree, right? That's correct. I was okay. there for the renewed lectureship. And I, I, I was there. I, I found that to, to be a really powerful event. And, in fact, the people that were sitting next to me, you, you brought them to tears at some points. Um, very, very powerful um, presentation. And, you know, one thing that struck me in this question that I want to ask you is, you know, how when you're talking about Flint, Michigan, how bad did government fail the people of Flint? It's probably the worst documented failure of the public by government science agencies in in our history. This is one of the worst environmental crimes ever perpetrated by government against one of its most vulnerable populations, the residents of Flint, Michigan. And the crazy thing is that federal laws were broken to make this happen, this man-made disaster that caused caused elevated blood lead in neighborhoods and probably 12 deaths and destroyed the city's vital infrastructure. You've, uh, your presentation made it clear, you've, you've faced a lot of criticism, uh, um, some sort of calling you an, an advocate, uh, but you've been deeply involved in this, and not only in this one, but the, the incident that happened in Washington, D.C. over a decade ago. You were intimately involved in that investigation as well. Um, and, you know, the Washington Post has, has called you a heroic professor. You, I, you know, listening to you talk about that event and the other events, I, I, I wonder, how do you keep yourself sane? I mean, this is some tough stuff to deal with. Well, I'm not sure that I have. I was a normal professor when this journey started, and, of course, your first resort is always to use science and engineering and facts and logic to get to the truth and reason with people. And unfortunately, you realize that science is done by imperfect humans, that we have a propensity to make mistakes, we have corrupt cultures, we become cynically, cynical, willfully blind, and unfortunately that's a culture of many of our agencies right now, federal, state, environmental agencies, and public health agencies. And At the end of the day, if they're not doing their job and people are getting hurt, you can either crawl away and have nightmares about it and tell people quietly in your class what you observed, or you can fight. You can fight to expose injustice and protect innocent children. And in both of those cases, I felt I had personally no choice, regardless of the financial, personal, and professional costs, that I had to speak out. And it was not something that I enjoyed. I I can't recommend it to anyone. I'm not proud of what I did, but 
it had to be done. I could not sit by and let these environmental policemen perpetrate this environmental crime and get away with it and allow more and more children to be unnecessarily and permanently harmed. I, I recently interviewed you for numerous stories that I've I've done uh, regarding Buffalo's uh, water service and more recently Erie County Water Authority's water service that serves the suburbs. You know, obviously we don't have a Flint situation here, but one of the things that I've learned from you and other experts, including Yana, who will be uh, at our event uh, November 16th, Wednesday, 7 p.m. at the uh, Theodore Roosevelt Inaugural Center, is that this lead in water, drinking water issue uh, is is something that can happen any, you know, it can happen any time. If you're served by a lead line or if you've got lead solder in your plumbing, you could you could have, you know, clear water out of 100 cups, but that one cup could be a danger. And that's one thing I learned from you two. Um, but, you know, I want to talk specifically about Erie County because that story is fresh. And what I what I found in my story is, and as you know, not not only did they sample a lot of homes that are owned by current and former employees, but they also knowingly sampled homes that had no lead. I mean, who's supposed to be the checks and balances of this program? Like, who's who's the agency that is responsible for ensuring that these water utilities? Oh, you know, follow the guidelines, which is you test the most at-risk homes, and a 100% need to have lead. Who, who's at fault here? Well, who polices the policemen? Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, we never had a plan that people would not follow the law, that they would not follow the rules, because we pay them to protect us. We pay them to do their job, and there's no profit motive in it for them to break the law. But I think what we had is a kind of culture of complacency that started with the very dangerous idea that lead in water isn't really as bad as people fear. Despite 2,000 years of human knowledge that having too much lead in water can poison people and make their mind give away, and this goes back to the Roman days, And then relearning that harsh lesson 150 years ago here in the United States when we chose to install lead pipes and the historian Warner Troskin wrote a great book called The Great Lead Water Pipe Disaster that outlined one of the worst environmental disasters in U.S. history, killing innocent, unborn children children and even adults from excess lead in water, that you know, we've created a culture of death, deception, and denial. And it starts with the fact that these lead pipes were installed because of a government law. Governments do not do a good job of correcting or acknowledging problems that they created. And uh, over this 150-year time period into the present day, the authorities have just for whatever reason, refuse to acknowledge just how serious this health threat is. Now, in the grand scheme of problems facing society, it's not on my top 10 or even top 20 list, but we have laws. We've had a debate as a society that we want to protect people from lead and water, and that makes it very disconcerting that the law is not being followed. If the law had been followed in Flint and in Washington, D.C., for example, 
thousands and thousands of children would not have been lead poisoned or had elevated blood pressure. So the oh, fact that mm-hmm. they're not following the law, mm-hmm. there is no check and balance. At present, we have no system except for people like myself and Dr. Lombrinadu and others who have fought this battle to try to make sure that the environmental policeman does their job. No one ever anticipated that they would behave in this way, that they would not follow the law. The Water Authority responded to my story uh, by emailing customers what looked like basically their own version of a news story. It was a pretty lengthy response. I'm a customer of theirs. I got it in the email. Um, one thing I want to get your re- your reaction to is there are several things that struck out of me in the response, but one that really startled me was this statement, quote, employee participation ensures the integrity of the testing program. What, how do you respond to that? I think they're trying to defend the indefensible. That's people's first reaction, that you're supposed to be seeking out the very worst-case homes, the homes that have lead pipe in the city, and it's less worth to simply allow employees to take these bottles home and to return them. And the fact that they're not getting the correct number, what you're trying to do is find the only way the law works is if you find the worst-case homes. And on the basis of those few homes you sample, you're judging the safety of water across the entire city. But this is how the Flint water crisis was allowed to occur. The city was not sampling the highest-risk homes. They were sampling homes that had no lead in it. What's the point? Uh, And as a result of that breaking of the law, even as National Guard walked the streets of Flint, even as there were neighborhoods that led boys and children, the, the plant was not failing the lead and copper bowl because they claimed that the homes they sampled had no lead. Well, of course they had no lead because there was no lead plumbing in them. So this is a very dangerous path, and I think they're just trying to rationalize the fact that they broke the law. It's not the industry standard to sample homes of employees, is it? It is not specifically disallowed, but it certainly is frowned upon. And if those homes do not have lead in them and they're plumbing, especially lead pipe, that is that's, that is breaking the law. You find worst-case homes. And the intent, it's very, very unlikely that, you know, the utility employees are living in the worst-case homes of the city for childhood lead exposure. But isn't there another problem? Let's say that they are. And the lead and copper rule requires that if you have a fail rate of 10% of the 90th percentile, you have to take certain steps to remediate that. So in essence, if they did happen to have a fail, they've got employees' homes that they're fixing. <laughs> I, mean, it's, it's, I mean, I guess that's not bad, but it certainly poses that conflict that several experts, including yourself, have said that, that – the rule wasn't intended really for people that work for the water authority. It was intended for uh, their 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 many hundreds of thousands of customers. Correct. 
the compromise that was made in the original law was the utilities would only have to sample a very small subset of homes, say 50, for example, to prove that the water across an entire city was either safe or unsafe. And the only way that that makes any sense at all is if you're finding the 50 worst homes to sample. And if you're going off and sampling homes that have no lead pipe or sampling homes of your your employees, you're very likely to send a false message. You run the danger of it. And that's what happened in Flint. Even as I said, I mean, it's the worst lead and water contamination event since D.C., and the city and state and EPA were claiming that they weren't even breaking the law, uh, that their lead and water was testing low when it wasn't because they weren't sampling the right homes. So the entire premise of the rule is dependent on sampling the worst-case homes, and if you're just sampling homes of your employees, not only does that create kind of a double conflict of interest, but you're not meeting the intent and letter of the rule. Through a Freedom of Information law request, I gained uh, an email uh, between the Health Department and the Water Authority, who serves the suburbs here in Erie County. And in it, it explained, uh, you know, that the Health Department was probing the Water Authority, how are you picking these homes? Like, how are you tiering these? What what criteria are you using? And in the story, uh, you'll see that the email explains how the uh, water authority, uh, water director, water quality director says that it's extremely difficult. And I'm paraphrasing, it's extremely difficult. They don't have a single record of, of lead service lines, and, and they don't have, they have piecemeal records that uh, accumulated over many decades. And although they did do surveys uh, in, in the 90s for the lead and copper rule, um, you know, they, their records aren't in one place. Things aren't updated. In a nutshell, they really don't know all of the vocations of these lead service lines, and therefore, it seems um, it seems that they don't have a grasp on where all of their most at-risk homes are. Is it acceptable? I mean, this this law went into effect almost uh, you know 25 years ago. I mean, is is it acceptable for any water utility to tell its customers, you know? It's hard. We don't really know where, where all of them are, and we don't know where all the at-risk homes. We're kind of taking a guess. Well, that's an honest statement, and I give them credit for that, and they also have a lot of company in that regard around the country. One of the scariest things about what we learned since Flint is that we don't know where these lead pipes are. So how can we tell people about the risk? How do we know that we're sampling the correct homes? They were supposed to come up with a sampling pool that was 100% confirmed to have the worst case homes, the right mix of homes with lead pipe and lead solder. And they claim to have done that in the 90s. Yeah, back in the 1990s. Now they were mm-hmm. supposed to have kept those records. I showed we, you and I looked at them, and it was we we had a hard time understanding what exactly they meant. Well, and then yes, and so we can kind of sympathize with them to some extent because mm-hmm. it's a nightmare. These pipes are underground, out of sight, out of mind, and frankly, until Flint and the specter of the dangers of lead pipe reemerged. I mean, people had forgotten that these lead pipes were there. People forgot that they pose a health risk. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, after Flint, when people started asking questions about, gee, how many lead pipes are out there? Do I have one in front of my house? The universal discovery was, oh, my gosh, we don't even know. 
And so I think their response was, was honest. It reflected the status of knowledge across the country, which is dangerous. And hopefully, because of Flynn and what's happening in Buffalo and elsewhere, the EPA is now recommending that, that we find out where these lead pipes are. Now, that's going to take perhaps a decade of a very significant effort. Mm. But until we know where these lead pipes are, uh, we're putting people at risk and almost have to assume that everyone who does not have a good record of what the pipe material is in front of their house, you have to assume you have a lead pipe in order to protect yourself and your family. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the complexity of this issue. In Flint, we know that they changed their water source and they didn't use uh, they didn't use any anti-corrosive chemicals to uh, help uh, with lead leach. You know, to help uh, slow down any of lead leaching into the water. We know here in the city of Buffalo and that in Erie County, they do use caustic soda or some other chemical that uses it's used as an anti-corrosive. Uh, measure. Um, my story, you've, you've been quoted saying, you know, that is kind of a Band-Aid. Um, it's not a solution. It do, there's no treatment that 100% prevents lead from leaching into water if you have lead solder or lead pipe. Is that correct? That's correct. It's a Band-Aid. It's a necessary Band-Aid. We're going to need to use that until at least all of the lead pipes are out of ground or uh, provide people lead filters that can protect themselves by cleaning the water that's used for cooking or drinking in a way that's ensuring that those lead particles and lead and water are removed. So, so with that said, you 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 could have a hundred glasses of water that are pretty much clean or have very small minimal amounts of lead in it, but this is a very sporadic. Same, like lead releases into water sporadically. Is that correct? I mean, talk about the complexity of this because some people think that if, oh, if I have a lead line, every time I'm pulling a, a glass of water, I'm drinking a lot of lead. And that isn't always what happens, especially if you're using this anti corrosive chemical. But it can happen. I mean, it, it's very sporadic, right? Can you, can you talk a little bit about the complexity of this? Yes. One of the maddening things about this problem is people used to think it was simple. They used to think if I just took one liter of water and had it tested, that based on that result, I could render a judgment whether the family was safe or not. We now know that that is very flawed, very dangerous, because we've actually sampled at homes where we've collected over, you know, 100 samples in some cases. And as many as 95 out of 100 can have almost undetectable lead, making you think that the water is completely safe. But five times out of 100, there's so much lead in the water, if you drank a glass of it, it'd be the equivalent of ingesting three to ten lead paint chips. Mm. And so you can get these massive doses of lead, and people used to think, oh, well, that's not such a problem because that's an acute, rare event, and people that would never happen to people. Uh, but we worry about those kind of exposures a little bit with lead paint. Why aren't we worried about them for lead and water? And it, it's really exposed all kinds of flaws in the kind of public education that we've given to people. If you go to EPA's website even today, they'll say, oh, test your water one time, and if it's low, you're safe. Uh, we know that that's not true. 
So we have to update our knowledge and our public education to better reflect the reality of the situation. And the new reality is that as long as you have a lead pipe in front of your house, I don't see how anyone can rationally argue that that water is safe to drink. Because we've seen enough of these cases where these pieces of lead fall off here and there, and the risk of those pieces of lead in water are so high that we're really almost recommending that if you have a lead pipe in front of your house, and especially if you have at-risk children, that you consider purchasing these lead filters that for $30 can you know, remove all the lead from water that you use for cooking or drinking. And, and that's the real risk. You can generally wash your dishes, uh, take baths, showers, wash your hands in water that has unhealthy amounts of lead or even these spikes of lead coming out, these particles, and that won't hurt you. But it's really the ingestion that we have to be wary about and control. And so when there's a simple, low-cost, effective solution, such as the NSF-53 lead filters that fit on the end of your kitchen faucet, mm-hmm. and that cost is on the order of what it costs to test your lead and water one time, you're just better off assuming that as long as you have a lead pipe, your water, you have a hazard. And uh, you got to protect yourself and your family. And I think more and more scientists and policymakers believe that's the way to go. You know, we this event, we hope to have a decent turnout. What do you hope to get out of this? I mean, I know what I hope to get. I, I hope that the public learns a lot from you, uh, from, from, from Dr. Lamberty-Dew and, and uh, Elizabeth McDade, but what do you hope um, to get out of this? Well, I, I hope to get the truth out about the real health risk and that's present in the water to correct some misconceptions and to start a dialogue between the health agency and the water utility and the public about this risk that reflects new knowledge that we've gained from the last 10 years and especially from Flint. And everyone agrees that even though Erie County and Buffalo, they're meeting existing federal law, most people now recognize that law is full of loopholes and isn't sufficiently protective of the public and we really need to be much more aggressive about protecting kids from all sources of lead, including lead in drinking water. And that's what we have to do because it's official U.S. government policy. There is no safe level of lead exposure. And we know that lead is present in these waters sometimes at, at levels of health concern. And we need to get families information they need to reduce the health risk to themselves and their children. Well, Mark, thanks for joining me on this podcast. I'm looking forward to the event on November 16th. I think people are going to learn a lot from you, and I really appreciate your participation. I'd like to remind listeners that Mark will be Skyped in as a guest to investigate a post-event on November 16th at 7 p.m. at the Teddy Roosevelt Inaugural Center, where I will recap my reporting on lead poisoning in Buffalo. Mark will be part of a panel that includes Yana Lambernidu, an affiliate faculty member of Virginia Tech, and Elizabeth McDade, who is a program coordinator of the Rochester Safe and Efficient Homes Initiative. Tickets are $10 for non-members and can be purchased at our website at investigativepost.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Telvach. 